Now, tonight I'm going to be talking about the parable of the uh, dishonest steward or the shrewd manager. You can tell me if you think he's dishonest or not. The subtext is money and faith. So if you're here, brave souls. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm really thankful. Uh, And tonight I'm going to be talking about money and Jesus and faith. Um, I want to see if anyone knows what this is. Counterfeit. Counterfeit? No, no. The postcard? No. It is an American money. It's real American money. It's a $2 bill. How many of you seen $2 bills? Maybe not. Toonies. But paper. We had $2 bills. Thomas Jefferson is on this. It is stamped because it is. it was given to me as a two-year-old birthday and so it commemorates 1976 200 years the bicentennial of the u.s of a uh and so i got a two dollar bill and so this is thomas jefferson uh the sentiment uh the declaration of independence being signed on the back and i didn't take this out of the envelope this eggshell color envelope until last christmas I knew a $2 bill was in there, but I had never looked at it. Who gave it to you? Uh, I think actually the guy, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I believe it's Clark Anderson Polk, the guy I was named after. I heard he's an amazing person. (laughs) If names have any indication. I actually have no idea what kind of person he was, but I was named after him. But actually, why did I put that down? I didn't want to put that down because it's not just a $2 bill. This is a symbol. June likes the word symbol. Um, This is a symbol of complex relationships. It might surprise you that this is not just value on a piece of paper. You know, like it's just a piece of paper. But it's valuable because there's an agreed relationship between the person who holds it and the person who... Uh, is exchanging with the bank system so much more. Uh, it's it's valuing the um, the formal relationship we have with one another. It's a formalization of a relationship, like a covenant. And so it's not the value of the paper itself um, or the plastic or even numbers across the computer screen. It's about trust the value of trust and how do we trust one another. In fact, the word the word we get credit comes from the word credo, which means to believe in, to trust. Trust that someone will be good for the money. Uh, now, we have paper. I've always wondered why paper. You know? And I thought gold used to be a standard and it was a standard, but why gold, not something else? And I've learned, uh, I watched this fascinating series called The Ascent of Money by Niall Ferguson. Uh, I encourage you to watch it on YouTube for free or read the book. But he talks about this, this relationship through, um, uh, through symbol 
is actually as old as Mesopotamia. They found clay tablets. And on K tablets, it says, so-and-so owes this much bushels or whatever to this person. But what he says is the most fascinating thing on the clay tablet is that it says the bearer of this clay tablet is owed such and such. That it's the clay is what is valuable. And if he loses the clay, he loses the money. Even though it's not clay in and of itself is not valuable. And so it bears the, the money that we use bears relationship. It speaks to a very complex um, relationship. And now today is even more complex where we have banks, stocks, bonds, mortgages, assets, principal, capital, on and on and on. And all these words are actually a formalization of complex relationship. And how do we trust and how do we borrow? How do we value? And it's amazing. The Ascent of Money was written because Niall Ferguson was asking, so how can this ragtag group in America be looking for subprime mortgages bring global economic collapse to the world or at least hindrance? I know Canadians would say, well, we weren't hurt as bad. I know, I know. But everyone was hurt to some degree. Um, but it just shows you how globally interdependent this relationship is. So money is really the formalization of how we relate to the value of work, to land, and ourselves, and possessions. And so this talk is really talking about how Jesus wants to change how this what this is oriented as to the symbolic power of this changes through Jesus's eyes. And he's calling us to be reoriented to how we see this as a symbol. What it signifies. What does this signify? What does this signify to you? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the parable of the shrewd manager, which is a story about wealth and our relationship to wealth and our relationship to others through wealth and our relationship to God through wealth. Now, the Bible, I'm going to give you an overview of the biblical view of money before we turn. I want to give you a broader context in which to understand the specific example of the parable of the shrewd manager and then talk about the implications of what Jesus taught around wealth for how we might be understanding money in the light of the gospel, in the light of the kingdom of God, in our present moment. So that's basically all I'm doing tonight. And thankfully, I don't even have to say this, it's not very long. <clears throat> so you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all night. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk about is that the Bible does not view money as evil. It is not inherently evil. Being wealthy is not inherently evil. It's considered a blessing from God. God blesses Abram with livestock and land. It's not wrong or immoral to own lots of land. Um, and so you just have to remember who gave you that land. Money can and wealth can bring you blessings. It can bring you friends. 
In Proverbs, it talks about someone with wealth has many friends and those who are poor has no friend. Even their closest friend can be lost in poverty. It also says that wealth um, of, a, um, of a person is their high wall, their fortress. It protects them against storms. That's true. We see, we see the wisdom of that, the general truths, that money can be a blessing. Um, but it can also be a curse where it can cause us to lose focus that God is the giver. It can divert our love from God. And so character is more important. It says, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. So money is really a blessing. It's a gift from God, but it can also make you lose your way, lose your focus on who you are and why you're here. Now, you also have not only general truths, you have practical applications through the law around money. I won't go through all the instances, but for example, in the law, it says don't lend with interest. So our whole system lending with interest is against the biblical code. Now, technically, it says they should not lend interest to their brothers. And so um, in the 12th century or 14th century, I'm not, I can't remember which, around the medieval period, the Jews started um, lending money to Gentiles or to Christians because they weren't their brothers or sisters. And so they felt that they could lend it with interest. Um, and of course, the Christians had to borrow it as well. And that was also one of the big professions in the world to actually do it because Christians weren't supposed to do it. So that's right. Christians weren't supposed to do it. And so uh, the Jewish people picked it up. Uh, and that's what, and they actually segregated them into what we now call the modern ghetto. The word ghetto comes from that. And in fact, Hannah Arendt in her Origins of Totalitarianism talks about a theory of that maybe the Holocaust is a result of that segregation. And in putting so much power, the finances in their hands, and then hating them for it, uh, because there was a real hatred and a stigma of of that, but also allowing them to do it and segregating them. And so it was it was something that Hannah Arendt says really caused the stigma of being Jewish. But I'm not going into that at all tonight, okay? So don't even ask me in discussion. <laughs> Maybe privately we can figure that out together. Uh, but within the law, you also have, and so you're not supposed to lend with interest. You're also supposed to forgive financial debts every seven years. Uh, you're not supposed to withhold lending money to someone who needs it six years and six months in just because you know that maybe in six months they're not going to be good for it. You're still supposed to lend it to them without interest and knowing that they're going to be forgiving these debts. It reorients you to how you're supposed to relate to wealth in towards your neighbor. Uh, you're uh, even allowed, um, you're supposed to have people return to their land during the Jubilee after every 49 years. So it, even if you made a, if your family has made a mess, they're supposed to be able to come back to their land um, and be restored to it. Or to allow the poor, don't don't over harvest your uh, trees. You know about this, Tanner. Um, you're supposed to allow the poor to glean the fields. In fact, we talked about there's a, a Christian groups in Vancouver that go out to the Okanagan and they glean the fields and take it back to the downtown east side. Um, and they call it a gleaning trip. <coughs> So really what you have is general principles or general truths about money 
and wealth in Proverbs, but you also have practical applications within the laws, like drawing a moral framework around wealth, exp explaining the uses and the limitations of wealth and how God's people are to relate to one another through wealth, through land, how they were to relate to God in light of this. Now, the New Testament picks up this idea of wealth. Um, you see them sharing possessions, uh, a call to give generously, that the wealthy should give generously, give to the poor. You see advice to the widows. Um, Paul, his main campaign, particularly through Romans, is him trying to make a collection so that he can give it to the poor, um, which is really identifying uh, the Jewish Christian church, particularly. Um, James says, don't favor the rich. Don't give preference to the, um, to the rich. Now, Luke is the book that we're going to be looking at specifically tonight, um, uh, his account. Um, now, Luke has lots to say about wealth. Uh, he says, blessed are the poor. He didn't say blessed who are poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor. And then he says, woe to the rich who receive comforts in this life. So Luke is quite strong about what he thinks about wealth, and that will show up. As he draws out Jesus's teaching in his account, uh, you have the parable of the rich fool, the one who stores his crops and thinks, oh, finally, I'm secure. And God says, you fool, for tonight you die, loses everything in Luke 12. And then it's this passage in Luke 16, verse 1, it says, Jesus also said to his disciples. Now, that doesn't sound like a great opening. Uh, it just seems like. Okay, Clark. Um, but actually, it's, it's a transition in Luke's account. It's a transition. Now, Luke does not often transition chronologically. He uses chronological references. It's in the framework of history. But he doesn't often use chronological sequencing. He uses topical sequencing. So uh, he doesn't use these time signatures. Rather, he just says, Jesus also said to his disciples. And so it just transitions from the, him teaching the Pharisees to him teaching the disciples with whole new material. Um, and so it's topically formulated within an overarching historical narrative. And this is not surprising because Luke has the Greco-Roman culture in mind as a part of his audience. And they always wanted to know the ethical instructions of their leader. And so Luke is organizing his account of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection around ethical teachings. And so he has ethical teaching about how Jesus thinks about money throughout his account. Now, before we get to chapter 16, Luke 14 through 15 is its own kind of setting. And it really sets up Luke 16, but in its own, it's really... Uh, Jesus is at a wealthy Pharisee's house. Now, the Pharisees were generally wealthy. They had pomp and circumstance. They were wealthy evangelicals. Think of that. They were politically powerful. They're wealthy and they were moral. And they desired, they desired um, the kingdom to come by their moral purity, by renewing the nation toward moral codes. Um, just as a side note, I'm not, I'm not push, pushing that too far. I'm just trying to give you an analogy, but don't think that I'm making implications of American evangelicalism tonight. That's not my point. Uh, that's up to you. 
But Luke 14 through 15 is really talking about the ethics of hospitality. What's happening is that Jesus is at this wealthy Pharisee's house, and they're talking about how these people are jockeying for position on places of prominence and of pomp and circumstance. And so Jesus tells narratives and stories. And so he talks about, because he's being questioned, he welcomes lowly people, the poor, the sinners, following him all around, tax collectors and prostitutes. What's going on with this weird rabbi? And so Jesus tells some parables, some stories, as a rabbi should, for them to interpret and know what to deal with. And so he talks about the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding banquet, the parable of lost things, the parable of uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the lost son. And so through these, he's really trying to push that God is here for sinners, not for the self-righteous, and that we shouldn't take places of prominence, but we should make ourselves low because it's the elder brother who is in the place of prominence who refuses to offer hospitality to the sinner, but the father welcomes him. And so Jesus is thinly veiled saying, Pharisees, you're not welcoming the sinner, but God the father is through me. But now Jesus also said to his disciples, so that's chapter 16. So it's it's a transition. So it's still within the context um, uh, of, of this Pharisee uh, wealthy party, and I'll get more to that later. But this theme is really focused on wealth, particularly in chapter 16. <coughs> uh, so you have the parable of the street manager, which we'll look at tonight, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, the the rich man who has lots of money and Lazarus is so poor, he's at his gates and being the dogs licking his sores. And then he dies. They both die. The rich man finds himself in hell in torment, desiring to be um, somehow uh, cooled by, and he wants Abraham, Abraham to send Lazarus to cool his tongue, to give him some relief. And it seems like the rich man has not learned his lesson. But Jesus is talking about the eternal consequences of wealth or putting wealth and poverty within the framework of hell and heaven in that story. And that's actually going to touch on ours. But what you see is that the rich man denies hospitality to the poor. And so you see the connection between chapter 14 and 15 and chapter 16. How does wealth impact hospitality? We have to put these together. And of course, Luke continues on after establishing this foundation of ethical teaching, talks about the rich ruler. The rich ruler comes to Jesus, says, I've done all these things. Uh, what else must I do to obtain eternal life? <coughs> Jesus says, <clears throat> you've done everything. But one thing that you lack is that you need to give up your wealth and follow me. And the man walks away sadly because he had great wealth. Um. What's interesting about that story is that the disciples are blown away by that. What happens are there's like, wow, even the Pharisees don't believe that's not what they say. Who then can be saved if not this person? Because wealth equals God's blessing. This guy's morally upright. He's wealthy. He's reputable. If he can't get into God's kingdom, then who can? And Jesus says, well, nothing impossible with um, God. And then you have Luke 19, Zacchaeus. Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, and he's overwhelmed that he becomes generous. 
And so you have this theme of wealth working through the gospel of Luke. The woes and the cautions, but also its blessings, as long as it's held within the context of God's eternal kingdom. And that's really what we're going to be looking at tonight. And of course, Luke also talks about paying taxes, the poor widow's offering, and more. So if you ever just want to think about wealth and look through the Gospel of Luke, you'll find lots to learn. <clears throat> but we're just going to look at one, the parable of the shrewd manager. And I just have to apologize that sometimes I'll be coughing. I was like in bed Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, all Tuesday. And then Wednesday, uh, I was better. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, uh, I just had a cold, the bug that's kind of going around. And so every once in a while, I'm just going to have a cough. Uh, if Martin or Olivia, would you be kind enough to get me some water? Thank you. I won't say anything interesting until you're back. So the most important part of this, nothing, just kidding. Okay. So I want to talk about the audience. So the, we're going to look specifically at the parable of the shrewd manager. And this is where you're going to have more of an opportunity to, to look at it more specifically. <clears throat> so the audience, well, primarily is the early church. So it's not just to give a biographical account of Jesus. It is that, but his primary Luke's primary audience in telling this story is Luke to the early church. You just need to recognize that before we think Jesus telling the disciples and the Pharisees. The primary audience is Luke using this narrative in order to say something about Jesus to the early church. And about what does Jesus say about money? particularly about Pharisees and wealth, because more than likely, the early church was not too different from the disciples saying, if the Pharisees can't be saved, then who can? And so he's setting within the context of what Jesus actually says. Thanks so much. But now, within the account, within the text itself, the primary audience are the disciples. Jesus said to his disciples. So he's wanting the disciples. Now, earlier, the parables have been, been told to um, uh, the Pharisees. The parable of the wedding banquet and acts, ethics of hospitality. But now he's turning to his disciples to teach them something specifically about money and wealth. But in verse 14, it says the Pharisees were listening in, heard this, and were upset. So the secondary audience is still there, the Pharisees. Um, in Luke's account, you have something like this where Jesus is talking to two people at once. You would think it's passive aggressive. It's just a heuristic. It's just a way of a pedagogy of like instructing. But what he's doing is uh, in Luke 7, there's a sinful woman who gets into the Pharisee's house and the Pharisee's like, Jesus must not know that this is a sinful woman who's touching him. He's not a prophet and she's a sinner. And he tells him the story about the money lending who has the greater debt. But then after Jesus talks to Simon, he turns and let's say that bread is Simon. Sorry, throw you under the rug um, and say, Simon, do you see this woman? So Jesus is not looking at Simon. Oh, no, there's real Simon. Sorry, Brad. Um, he's not looking at Simon. He's looking at the woman, but instructing Simon by looking at the woman. 
Well, there's something similar going on here. He's looking at the disciples, wanting the Pharisees to overhear. Okay. So you have to see all this at work in this narrative. Now I want you to understand the situation of him telling the story. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier about uh, a wealthy Pharisee's house. Now Tanner will understand this well. So will Julia, though she's not in here. Has any of you been to uh, Mission Hill Winery? I tried to take the kids up to go look at it. In my camp, we've been camping for a couple of days. We roll up in our dirty minivan. And the young ladies at this gate of this, like it's, it sits upon this uh, mountainside, beautiful vineyards, beautiful place up there, fancy big art, sculptures outside, drive in, you're like, ooh, I'm an important person. <laughs> and the young ladies, you know, 18 years old, were like, no, you're not. Can you please turn around and get out of here? Uh, so <laughs> I was like, ah. Uh. You know, I should have like wore something nice or spoken with a British accent, um, something posh that told them that, you know, I'm just a visitor from England. Uh, then they would have let me in. But if, you, if you've been there, uh, Julie tells me that there's like big pictures of the person who owns Mission Hill and he, and he exhibits his wealth by showing the fancy art and things. Now, I'm not throwing this guy under the dirt or under whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. Under the bus. Under the bus. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're here tonight to help me out. Uh, but there is self-aggrandizement and there is an exhibition of his wealth. So imagine, for an instance, that there's wealthy evangelicals there who are having a very posh wine and dine, okay? And Jesus somehow gets invited with his guests, with his disciples. And he's sitting there and they're all talking and you hear the clinking of crystal. And Jesus decides to turn and to start teaching them about wealth in the midst of this party. Because that is in fact what is happening within Luke's literary presentation. Like I said, it may not have happened chronologically or historically in this way, but Luke is wanting to set the literary landscape that we see that this is what he wants us to see so that this is something that Jesus would have likely done <coughs> and maybe in fact had done. <clears throat> and so Jesus turns to his disciples over the clinking of crystal with a fine Pinot Grigio. Mission Hill does have a fine Pinot Grigio. Their whites are better than the reds mostly. And uh, let me read this. This is from the uh, English Standard Version. The ESV, it helps to have different versions, but please follow along. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. Yeah, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe, my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. <coughs> he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation <laughs> than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. This is going to be difficult with my voice. <laughs> For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Go on. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not, have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give the, you the property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Finished reading to verse 13. Thank you so much, Liz, for reading. Um, so if you didn't hear that, you know where it's located in the Bible, and hopefully it's somewhat familiar to you. But just imagine, did anything stand out for you in that imagined setting? Jesus telling a story about wealthy transactions and owing and a person being shrewd and then having uh, talk about money. Because I know I've been to nice people's homes. And it's nice to talk about how good their wine is. It's good to talk about how their countertops are from Italy. But you can't talk about money. Unless they're talking about their money. But you can't really question money or especially the ethics of money. It's much harder to do. Especially when you're questioning it. Which is what Jesus has done in this story. So let me give you a little bit of the background to this parable. It's a very odd story. Uncanny, we might put it. There's a, first I want you to understand the economic background to this story. That lozenge really helps. <laughs> Miracle. Um, so there's the wealthy man and the manager and some lender or debtors. So the wealthy man, you have to understand, is enormously wealthy. We know uh, it's hard to see that because you're like 100 gets 80. You know, you're just like, eh, okay, making a small little discount at the convenience store. No, 
these are ancient measurements. And so we know how wealthy this person, this person has enormous wealth to allow such outstanding debt. So the oil is 875 gallons of oil that are, is owed. That means that is three years of the average income. So I looked up the average income in BC, it's around 90,000. So imagine that this person owes $270,000. And the manager says, okay, I will cut it in half if you pay it right now. The person says 135,000, boom. Or uh, 1,100 liters of wheat, eight to 10 years of average income. So think of $900,000 debt. And the person says, okay, just give me 80%. Well, that's a lot, 720,000 or something like that. And you're just like, boom, gone. So these are people dealing with enormous sums. So it's not just that the wealthy man can allow such outstanding debt to be owed and to be kept there, that he's enabled to be able to lend that much money, but that these people are good for the, such loans. So it's not just that he's a wealthy farmer or landowner. These are wealthy farmers borrowing from an even wealthier farmer. What we're talking about is an aristocratic class happening here. <coughs> and it shows you that they have so much money that they can pay these debts immediately. It's just, it's just the cost of doing business. Now, then there's the manager, the manager of the accounts. Now, he could be a slave or he could be a freeman. It doesn't really matter. When we hear the word slave, it gets us a little confused. Um, it's just an indentured uh, economy back then that you could, you could enslave yourself. You would say, I want to be hired out, and now I'm your slave. But really, you're being indentured, and then you can buy yourself out of your own slavery. So it's really indentureship. Now, to understand that this manager is a manager of such high-end accounts, having authority over these accounts to represent the wealthiest of wealthy people, just think of lawyers for the highest in clientele, the guy who represented O.J. Simpson, for instance, or Johnny Depp, or think of an agent for Hollywood actors. This is the level of money this guy's dealing with because he has high-end um, clientele or people who employ him. So he has a good position. Not only does he have a good position financially, he has a good position socially. He's a part of the aristocratic class. He can go in and make deals and make them as if his, his signature is good as the owner. There's a problem. <clears throat> he's getting a little too high on the power and money. And so what he does is that, uh, okay, is that what he does is word gets back to the wealthy man and says, hey, your manager is, I think, a bit dishonest. I don't think, I think he's doing something shady. I think there's been a waste, a mismanagement. And so the wealthy man hears about it, comes and says, what am I hearing about this? about you, probably his reputation's on the line. We don't know what's going on fully. 
But the same word wasting his uh, his um, accounts or wasting the possessions is the same word that is been applied to the prodigal son just one chapter earlier. It's the same word. So it seems like there's some immorality, um, some kind of indiscretion in how he's mismanaging these accounts. <coughs> and so he's fired. But if you know about people who are fired from big business, you're not fired at that moment. Rather, you need to go settle the accounts, put them in good order so that we can hand them off to the next person. And so this person is fired in principle. And in fact, he's not going to get his place back. Um, but he has some time. But I want you to understand what this means to this guy when he gets fired from his job. <laughs> it means that he loses his incredible income. It also means he loses his incredible status. So hear that when he thinks about, I only have two options. I have to dig ditches. I'm way too weak for that. Now he might be old. I think maybe he's just never worked a hard day in his life. He went to the good schools. He knows how to do the accounts. He's gotten comfortable, gotten a little heavy on the sides. He can't dig ditches anymore. He just can't do it. <coughs> and if he can't work, well, he's going to have to beg. And that is super shameful. Manual labor is blue collar and the kind of the, the bluest of collars or begging where you have no collar. <laughs> you don't want to be blue collar, Josh. You know where that leads. I'm kidding. Josh is our favorite blue collar person that we know. No shame. Um, and so, <laughs> so this guy is feeling incredible shame and pressure. His back is against the wall. But necessity is the mother of invention. When your back is against the wall, you get great ideas. Ideas that you never would have thought of earlier. And in fact, in the Greek, um, here in the ESV, it's very boring. I've decided what to do. Very proper. But actually, the Greek is like, I've got it. The light comes on. I got a plan. He hatched a plan. I know what I can do. Because he realizes I'm fired. I was only seeing it through the dark lens. But I still have wiggle room. I got some time. He needs to get, I need to get the accounts in order. I can, and so I can go put the accounts in order. Let me go talk to all the debtors. And not only does that buy me time, I can work the network. I can make connections. Maybe I can have a soft landing. That's what he's thinking. He's got the networks in place and he's got time to settle the accounts. <coughs> Brilliant. So he goes about doing it. But this is where his plan is. He wants to reduce the debt of these enormously wealthy farmers. Now, it's not essential we know how he has done this. It doesn't, it doesn't really change how we interpret it too much. We don't miss the point of what Jesus says because the story simply does not tell us. It's only guesswork of why, how he reduced these debts. Um, but we do know why he's doing it. We don't know how, but we know why. Is it in order to find a new placement? And so he has to be very wise and shrewd to think, okay, I'm not going to get my job back. I don't want to throw him under the bus because then that might really hurt me. 
I need to keep my reputation and I knew to do it in such a way that I can get away with it. So he stays up all night thinking about this. And so either he can randomly reduce rates. That seems very unlikely because his master commends him at the end. He could remove his commission. Maybe that's it. But it's more likely that he's removed interest, the interest to the oil and the wheat. Um, one, because not the master commends him. Uh, it would make the master look commendable because you weren't allowed to give loans based on interest. And so if this man is giving on interest, the man can say, actually, according to the law, um, my master wants to remove that interest that he shouldn't have, just pay the debt. It also seems like interest because there are some examples of oil and wheat with interest, and they're of similar percentages. <laughs> so it seems like an ingenious plan. Remove the interest. You get the favor of these people. People see that you're smart and savvy, and the master commends you. He's not going to keep you. <laughs> You burn that bridge, but now you have a place to go. And so Jesus says, the master commends the dishonest manager for shrewdness. The master commends the dishonest manager for shrewdness. That's in verse eight. One of my favorite translations is uh, the master says, I've got to hand it to you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the master is delighting and thinking, well, good, good for you, or like, what? I can't believe you did that. Like, he's just like, wow, okay, okay, good, good one. And I think if it was my translation, that uh, the master would like put out a fist like this and say, mad respect. <laughs> that's what I think, mad respect. In fact, I think that's how the Greek actually was meant to be read. <laughs> The number one virtue in business is, well, not just success, shrewdness. Okay, shrewdness. Now, Julie and I, I must confess, back in our early salad days, we watched The Apprentice. I don't know if you know what The Apprentice is. It was how Donald Trump became famous as a reality TV star. He was already well known as a business tycoon with his casinos, his hotels, and other products. But he had, but he became a TV show star. And he was very entertaining. In fact, I would say he's still very entertaining. Whether it's good TV or bad TV, I'm not going to say. But he's very entertaining. He knows how to keep people looking at him, right? Well, Julie and I loved watching The Apprentice. Because what he would do is he would bring in like 14 attractive people. And they would have to compete in order to be an apprentice at his business. It was actually quite brilliant because it was just a hiring process and he knew how to make money out of his hiring process. That's brilliant. That's shrewd. He's looking for someone like him. I need someone shrewd like you. Now, they would go through these projects and they would backbite. They would lie. They would be poor project leaders. Um, I found that you can go on YouTube and watch season two within 10 minutes. Very fun. It brought back warm memories. You fired. Um, Teresa, you fired. Um, it was really great. But there's the one guy that won season two. And it was, he showed 
shrewdness throughout. And Donald Trump would fire people who didn't show shrewdness. In fact, one guy was, uh, he said, I don't remember his name, Tom, you know that you're exempt this week from being fired. He's like, ah, Mr. Trump, I'm so confident. I don't need that exemption. He's like, you're stupid. You're stupid. Why would you say that? You're so stupid. That's the stupidest thing. Ever. You're fired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's like, why wouldn't you take the exemption? He's like, oh, his name was Bradford. You're the brightest person in this class. You're the brightest person among all 14. But when you do something that stupid, you've got to be fired. You've got to look for your exemptions. And uh, so sometimes Donald didn't look for the brightest, uh, not the brightest, uh, the most character driven person, but the person who was shrewdest, just enough character to get along with people and run projects well. The number one virtue in business is shrewdness. And so this master is saying, you may not have the most character. Maybe you believed in giving interest away, cutting that, maybe not. Maybe you wanted to use the law, maybe not, but you were shrewd. Hmm, good job. So why did Jesus tell this story, this strange, slanted, uncanny story? It's weird. I'm going to help you understand how weird it is before I, I explain what Jesus would have told it. Now, imagine Jesus wants to come on our movie night. Okay, he wants to come in. We tidy up the house as best we can. Um, and he's going to watch The Apprentice with us. Okay. <clears throat> and we thought it would be fun at the moment. We thought, wow, you know, he'll love Donald Trump. And we can tell him about the president. And then we start watching and we're like, oh, gosh, we're watching in horror. The petty jealousies, the backbiting, the the doggy dog world of it all that we're just embarrassed and we're just waiting for it to end. We should have we should have stopped it, but we're too far into it now. And what should I do? And I just have to wait until it's over. OK, now it's over and you're just about to open your mouth and apologize. But Jesus clears his throat because he's about to say something. You're just like, OK, I'm going to get a tongue lashing. And Jesus says. You know what? We all gasp. Those folk are more shrewd than believers, which is too bad. Those folk are more shrewd than believers, and that's too bad, which is too bad. You know, hmm? These people are better than believers somehow. They're, they're doing something that is more shrewd than believers. But what's worse is that Jesus keeps talking. He says, what y'all should be doing. Now, y'all should understand that when Jesus would speak, if he came today, he would not use the Queen's English. He would use the mother tongue, Southern language. What y'all should be doing is use your money and possessions, all that stuff in this life, to make friends and connections so that when you die, they may welcome you into eternity. What y'all should be doing is use your money and possessions, all that stuff in this life, to make friends and connections. So when you die, they may welcome you into eternity. And that would be strange, wouldn't it? 
be really strange. But remember Jesus's context. He's teaching the disciples at a fancy dinner party with the Pharisees in earshot. Awkward. Confusing. Jesus knows how to set the party aflame. I almost said farty. Because I was trying to say a flame. Okay. So let me give you some clarifications on how Jesus uses parables so that we can understand what he's trying to say. Why is he telling this story in this way? Well, I just want to give a couple of things, two clarifications. Is first that Jesus uses counterexamples, and that also Jesus wants to illuminate the nature or, or wants to illuminate the depth of human nature in parables. So, first, just to help you understand that he's trying to use counterexample. Parables are not just to be something uplifting to the kids. He's trying to tell, tell a story of ordinary existence. Um, and but he's not just trying to find, hey, that person's a positive example. Why, why aren't you more like Becky? Why aren't you more like Tom? He makes straight A's. That's not how he tells parables. In fact, um, Jesus likes to point out bad examples sometimes to draw a contrast. So he's not advocating for dishonesty. He's not advocating for selfish shrewdness. Rather, he's expressing a way of contrast. So uh, in two chapters later in Luke and Luke 18, there's a parable called the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. I've talked about this, that, um, that parable, this term in a devo devotional, but it's interesting. It's in order that these disciples not give up in prayer and talks about a widow who's persisting in for justice before an unjust judge who does not care about God or people, but in the end gives her justice anyway, even though he hasn't changed a bit just because he's tired of being bothered. What does Jesus say? Consider the persistent widow. No, he doesn't. Consider the unjust judge. Is God going to withhold his justice? So Jesus likes to draw parables and draw counterexamples. What God is not like. Now, it's, under, it's interesting that why would Jesus draw out something that God is not like in order to communicate what God is like? Because I think of the second thing is because Jesus in his parables want to draw out, illuminate the depth of human nature, the depth of human desire. How do we actually desire? How do we actually function? Sometimes we tell moral stories that are nice stories, but that, that's not, it doesn't touch our drives, our desires, how we actually act. Jesus is looking and sees how people actually act. That when people's are, backs are against the wall, they become ingenious. Doesn't matter their level of education. If they get in trouble, they become ingenious. I mean, Sarah Beth's a smart girl, but she, her back was against the wall. She needed more money. I need money, Dad. How can I make money? And she asked me every night, how can I make money? Um, she was nine, I guess, at the time. And I was like, I don't know. And I, in my mind, I was like, it's impossible. And uh, she, she, she was like, can someone hire me out? Will someone hire a nine-year-old? I'll do anything. 
um, she was trying to figure it out. She she couldn't sleep because she was trying to figure out how to make money. And she realized <laughs> that, oh, her friend across the street, the daughter of the honey farm place, I wonder if we could sell our claymations over at their store and we can just sit in front. That's in fact what she did with the daughter. And they made $20 selling their claymations. And I said, Julia, I mean, not Julia, Freudian. Um, I said, Sarah Beth, that was really smart. Don't do it again because we have to maintain our relationship with the honey farm people. Okay. But when our backs are against the wall, I remember this, uh, um, and some of you will, um, Liz, Donna, and Julia will remember, but there was a person that came about a year ago. Um, he was an addict that had heard about Labrie and heard that there was a spare bed. Um, I was on the phone. It was very odd how he heard about Labrie, about what kind of housing he was looking for. And I'm like, we're not a recovery center. We're not like, he's like, but I'm on the bus. I'm sorry. He's like, but I'm almost there. And he kept and he shows up. And I'm like, welcome. Sit down. Let's talk. He was a bit frenetic, um, uneasy, and he had no place to sleep. He said, I knew, in fact, that he had a couch to sleep at someone's house because that's where he had been sleeping. But this person was tired of him sleeping on his couch and said, hey, I heard about this girl who stayed at Labrie and there's a big house with rooms. And that's how he heard about it. So he's sitting there and no matter. And so his his mind has become addled because of addictions. He was very edgy. But he was an all star debater. He told me every good reason, quoting the Bible, knowing his theology, not that he lived accordingly, but he knew it because he was like, you owe me a room as a Christian. And I said, you know, I think maybe a recovery place. Julia's brother has a recovery place. I think that that would be a good place for you. Um, but we just can't take anyone. I don't know you. I don't know your story. You wouldn't be here for Labrie. You would just try to be. I wouldn't know when you would leave. There are just too many unknowns here. And uh, thankfully, texting Julia's brother and says, oh, I know this person. He creates He creates a big disturbance. He's not a helpful person to keep there. Um, but I worked very hard and told him that I would try to look for a place. And thankfully, um, got in touch with his mom. His mom came over. I talked to her and she and I reasoned together that this was not a place for him. And she knew it. But she just didn't want to have to take him home. Heartbreaking story. But my uh, so we did everything in order to try to um, to provide for that person in a way that we could. But my point in talking about it is that even with an adult mind, he became a fortress of logic and creative discourse in order to get something he needed. His back against the wall, he could figure something out. Jesus sees that in human people. He sees that when our backs are against the wall, we become ingenious about providing our security, providing what we need or what we want. And so we apply all our creative energies to supply for ourselves. And so Jesus is telling this parable, comparing 
to say, look at this dishonest manager and how he's so shrewd, commended for his shrewdness. If people can be like that naturally, and he saw it, why aren't believers like that with the kingdom of God? Why aren't we ingenious and creative about how to provide eternal security for others and ourselves? Why is that not even on your map or on your mind? That's really what Jesus is teaching. And so we want, what he wants to do is he wants to create a symbolic shift. He doesn't want you to look at this as just the accumulation of power or convenience or pleasure or control. He wants to readjust how you see wealth and money. Because I said earlier, this is a symbol of complex relationships of trust, a formalization of that relationship. So how might we use this to make friends for the kingdom of God? He wants to shift your thought process around money. So how does he change the symbolic um, nature of money, of wealth or possessions or homes? He wants us to see it in light of etern eternality or, no, that's not right, eternity. He does this in three ways, okay? So what Jesus has done in this is that he's told a parable, and now he's going to give some instruction based on the parable in, uh, in verses 8 through 13. First, he wants to change this as not the almighty dollar, but it's temporary. It won't always be here. So in light of, we need to see this in light of the age to come. So in verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd with dealing, um, in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What he's done is he hasn't, um, what he's done is create two different postures toward this. The sons of this world. See this only within this imminent frame, only within this world, in this life. What does this mean for my life as long as I'm living? But he's saying, but in eternity, in the age to come, what will this mean? What impact will this have? He wants to talk about the temporary nature. And so in verse 8, it says the sons of this world. In fact, the Greek says the sons of this age. And one of the primary ways... Uh, that we often think of Christianity as lower and higher, earth and heaven. And sometimes that kind of language creeps in. But the primary understanding in the New Testament of Christianity is the then and the now. The age that, um, that is, that is passing, and the age that is coming, that will be coming forever. How do we see it? And so when a person becomes a Christian, they become a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be destroyed. So when you become a Christian, you become aware of your eternal existence, your eternal home. So when you become a Christian, eternity begins now. It doesn't, you're not just waiting for it. It has already started. 
your relationship with God through Jesus and your formation through Jesus. It begins now. So I want you to imagine, why do I keep putting this down? <laughs> I'm just so not attached to it, you know. <laughs> um, is, so imagine, let's imagine that we take a trip and that we all go to heaven. We're there in eternal bliss. And we have a choice to come back. And we do. It's like, okay, well, that was temporary. Who wants to go back? Just, you know, another 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years. We're like, okay, we'll go back. We know that that's the final place. We know what, what it's like in exact, you know, exactly. But we've come back here and we're like, oh, uh, ooh, you know, I have a bit of a heaven hangover. I can't believe reality's tough, you know, but how would we see money after we've gone to heaven and come back? We've been with the king. What would this be? Now, would we see this as useless? No, actually, we'd see it quite useful, quite powerful. It doesn't, we don't need to be controlled by it because we already know our identity, but we can use it. How might we use it? So it's not to be thrown away or despised. Money is not a bad thing, but it's seen as a gift of the created order that we can function in relationship through this. But we need to do it wisely. We need to do it faithfully. There's lots of concern and problems and warnings with it. The Bible's full of it, but also says, but it's not something you just throw away. It's like fire. Fire is very powerful, very useful. But you don't want to just like get rid of it, right? Especially in this house. We need fires, right? So money, we don't want to despise it, but we want to be able to communicate the gospel through it. How can we communicate the gospel through our wealth? Now, I have to brag on my wife. Um, and so this has nothing to do with me because I am not a good person. <laughs> um, you know, have mercy on me, a big sinner, right? But uh, so I tell this story not to sh shine any light on me, but I'm going to shine a light on my wife because she's good with money. I'm really bad with it. Maybe I should have told you earlier that I'm really bad with money. Maybe that totally negates everything I just said. But um, but Julia's good with money. And I remember going with her and I tried to go with her. Um, and I listened to the experts talk about money and the accounts and stuff. And I just listen and I'm confused. And I try and they keep looking at me because I'm the man. And I'm just like, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, I agree with my wife. Yeah. Um, but. I remember this going to H&R Block and this tax accountant was looking at our finances and seeing how much we make and seeing how much we tithe. And, and I say we as a royal we, it's actually just Julia. But I was like, wow, she's like, you tithe a lot for considering how little you make. Do you know that this is happening? Like, is someone taking advantage of you? And Julia's like, no, no, that's like a part of our value system. This is what we're taught to do as Christians, we tithe. And so it was an opportunity for a literal tax accountant to look at our finances and say, wow, the gospel is in the numbers. How is the gospel being declared through our wealth? <clears throat> if someone looked at your accounts, 
If someone looks at your accounts, what would they say you value? What would they say you desire? How do you relate to others? I would not want them to look at my accounts. <laughs> I'm not going to look at your accounts, but I ask you to think about this honestly and openly before God as we sit here. And uh, I know that someone looking at your financial account doesn't tell the whole story, but what if they were to look at your possessions and how you used it, how you used your home? Does it communicate the gospel? What does it communicate about your desires? And if you aren't a Christian, have you seen Christians communicate eternal values through their money, their possessions, and their homes? I hope so. But often we should say, and as Christians, sometimes feel ashamed that we don't communicate the gospel as well as we should through our money, our homes, and our possessions. So that's the first thing that Jesus wants to shift on the symbolism of money or wealth. It's temporary. It's of the passing age. It's temporary, but it's to, it's to invest in the age to come. How can we invest the money in the age to come? An inheritance that cannot be ruined. The second, he wants to say in verses 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? So the second thing is faithful with a little equals faithful with much. Dishonest with little means dishonest with much. Now, often we think, well, we just need to wait until we have established enough security enough possessions in order to be generous. But that often does not pan out. What is more consistent is our whatever our posture has been with a little will become consistent with our posture with much. And so this isn't just talking to someone who's wealthy. Even if you have a small apartment, not much wealth, not many possessions, do you communicate the gospel with what you do have? But I want you to notice something, because Jesus has just done a pull the rug out from our legs, our feet, because he just created a new symbol, a new symbolic understanding of what this is. One, he said that this is temporary. But what is the little in here? If someone is faithful with little, they can be faithful with much. Is he saying that those who can be faithful with a little money can be faithful with lots of money? That's how we often hear it, right? Is that how you heard it? That's how I heard it. But that's not what he's saying. Those who are faithful with wealth can be faithful with true riches. That's what he's saying. Because he says, if then you have not been faithful in an unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? You remember, he's already established the age that, that is and the age to come is temporary. But the second thing is that this is just little. This is not true wealth. This is not true riches. <clears throat> and so it's a symbolic shift. Little equals earthly wealth. So it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or in the favela, um, favela, favelas in Brazil or if you're Elon Musk. It's all little. Little. Sorry. 
gosh, I'm sick, but I'm not, that didn't cause any problem. Okay, never mind. So Elon Musk is dealing with little. Do you understand that? In comparison to the kingdom of God, the true riches of the kingdom, Elon Musk has little. True riches, um, what we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, righteousness, goodness, kindness, love, these are true riches. So if we can't handle a little wealth, how can we be responsible with righteousness and goodness and kindness? That's what he's saying. How can you find, how can you be responsible in the kingdom of God? But he's not done with us yet. So he slapped us once, he slapped us twice. Now we have one more little loving slap, okay? Um, so the first one is that this is temporary. The second is that it's little. The third, this doesn't belong to you. This belongs to someone else. If you have not been faithful with what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money or wealth. Okay. Wealth is not ours, no matter how little or how much we own of it. All of life belong to God. All of life. Jesus reemphasizes what the Old Testament says. The land that you have received is not yours. Allow the foreigners in because it is the land I have given you. The Ten Commandments start with, I'm the God who delivered you, and I'm the one who's going to take you into this land. It's all his. So this is not ours. It's his. And so what's implied in that? This is where it burns. Okay. If God takes account of what, how we've done with managing his resources, have we been the dishonest manager? Have we mismanaged his accounts? If he were to look at our accounts, who have we ultimately been devoted to? God or this world's wealth? With whatever you have, wealth, possessions, beauty, power, talent, status, intelligence, whatever, how will God judge your stewardship of those gifts? Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or will he say, what is this I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management for you can no longer be manager. This is Jesus saying that. That's what he's trying to get at. It's a hard word. So Jesus has shifted the symbolism or the symbolic power of wealth to say it does not belong to this age or to you. It belongs to God in the, and it points to the age to come. How are you communicating the gospel? In light of eternity, in light of God's coming kingdom, money and wealth is temporary. It is little and it belongs to someone else. What will happen when our accounts must be settled? Now, if we're honest, that's convicting. It was convicting to me writing it. I don't want to say it because we've all fallen short. All of us have wasted our possessions. All of us have mismanaged our accounts. 
Like the dishonest manager, our accounts reveal that we have been bad stewards, wasting with what is given into our care. Yet, unlike the dishonest manager, we have no wiggle room and no alternate connections because it all belongs to God. And when he takes account, it's final. Yet, Jesus himself, as the disciples will come to realize in light of the cross and the resurrection, has paid our debt. So I told you that this isn't just the context of Jesus speaking to his disciples. It's Luke writing to the early church, Luke writing to us through the power of the Spirit. And in light of this, it's not just the Jesus who is teaching as a good ethical teacher, but Jesus who laid down his life and rose again, creating the foundation for our forgiveness. He has reconciled our accounts. It's amazing how often the New Testament uses economic language to explain the sacrifice and the victory of Jesus for us. Paul says very powerfully in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might, you might become rich. Jesus had the glory of eternal habitations and set it aside. The eternal riches of God's glory set it aside, took on the humble form of a servant and died, died on the cross so that he might call all to himself. He became poor so that we might become rich. So Jesus isn't just teaching and isn't able to walk the walk. In fact, he not only exemplifies his teaching, he gives the foundation for that teaching. He did this so that we might be welcomed into his eternal habitation. John says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's beautiful. John 14, verses 1 through 3. It transforms Jesus's ethical teaching on wealth. It's not simply truth about what's true about money, but that our orientation to the almighty dollar is grounded in the Lord who laid his life down for us so that we might be rich in his mercy and grace. And it's applied to us and it's applied to our account, establishing an eternal inheritance, which cannot be destroyed or taken. It cannot perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Wow, how do we respond to that? Well, the early church responded big time. The foundation of the gospel with the ethical teaching on wealth transformed individuals. It transformed society. We see shortly after this in Luke's account the story of Zacchaeus. When he, in Luke 19, when he encounters Jesus, he's cut to the quick around money. He wants to right every wrong 
amend anything that he's done wrong. I will give you money. I will pay you back. I want to make it right. And then he wants to give half of the rest away. It's not because he's trying to be moral to please Jesus, but that his heart is overwhelmed with gratitude and he wants to give in abundance and exuberance. And so it's an internal transformation that causes this external renewal in his heart, but also creates a social renewal. And that's what Luke is looking for. Not just that we might be more generous with our money, which is good, but that we also might be hospitable to the poor, that we create social conditions. And so the early church is amazing. In chapter two and verse in chapter four of Acts, you hear about some early churches who want to give and they share everything in common. Now, this is not a command in the Bible. It's not a command or an imperative that we must share everything in common. But it's something that is voluntarily wells up in this community and they share everything in common and it witnesses to the gospel through how they did it. That's the point. It's not trying to bring some communism into the church, for instance. um, uh, But it is to say, but have you hid behind other economic systems to protect your own money? How invested are you in the kingdom of God and in the gospel of Jesus with your money? Are you willing to impart it so that no one else is in need? That's what was happening into the church. <clears throat> when Lydia is encountered by the gospel um, through Paul in Acts 16, he's a, she's a wealthy woman who says, come back to my house and I want all of you to stay there. And she welcomes them. And in fact, it's one of the first churches established. And apparently there's still like uh, recognition on where it is. She was a very wealthy woman. The early church was very well known for their care of the poor. We see this through the New Testament letters and emphasis in James' letter. The poor is among them. Or you hear about slaves. You also hear about Paul's compassion and practical concern toward widows. The widows who have money, let them be on their own. But those who don't have any money, make sure that they have enough. And don't begrudge them if they have Jewish, if they have some Greek influence in their blood. My colleague, Marty Kais, who went to uh, Brown University, said one of her profs said, Christians invented the poor. Christians invented the poor. And this is a woman, a woman who's not a Christian. The reason she says that is that the poor did not have a status in society. They were there. There's always been the poor, but they became established as a group that society needed to tend toward. Now, there was some social concern, but Christians started doing it very well, where Julian the Apostate hated Christianity, but he respected Christians because they cared for the poor better than his own people did. They were communicating the gospel, not through some moral duty about what they're supposed to do with their money, but that their hearts were overwhelmed and abundant with gratitude and voluntarily wanting to help those in need because they had received eternal riches through Jesus Christ. They inherited true riches. And so they couldn't but help give their wealth and share their possessions, open their homes. So in conclusion, I just want to ask the question, what about us? As Christians in light of eternity or in light of the kingdom of God, how might we open our hearts? How might we open our homes? 
how might we open our hands with our possessions? I'm not asking you to answer that. I just want you to sit with it. And, um, and maybe at some point later to reflect on it. Don't let that moment go. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, this is uh, discussion time. So anyone in the room can ask questions. If you're online, uh, just raise your hand uh, or write a question in the chat um, box, and then I will respond as best as I can, or maybe someone else in here can. But uh, this is a time for discussion. For the final talk of the winter lecture, I thought we should go out in a bang. So uh, what would y'all like to talk about? Any clarifications or disagreements or questions? Well, I like what you said about being in the, the giving from the heart, mm. you know, as opposed to you know, trying to figure out like what's the minimum entry requirement that I have to give to meet the standard that will get me over the line <laughs> and then good with God. Yeah. You know, uh, it, that it, it's, it's about, it, it's a heart thing. And, you know, and then, but, but, but then you've got, from when you look at it from that point of view, well, then it's never enough. You know, I always, give a, I always give a little more, or, yeah. you know, so it's, I, I think it's actually a very difficult question. I think you dealt with it really well. Yeah. But uh, it's a, it's, I think the key is that it's a heart thing. It is. Yeah, it's our heart before God. Mm -hmm. And so when we say it's a heart thing, it's not just about how we feel. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't give against our conscience, but our consciences may judge us at some point. So it is hard. So it shouldn't be coercion. There should be freedom of conscience. But our freedom of conscience should be before God and ask God, how might I respond to you? Um, uh, and that it's best when it's given willingly, uh, when it's given with joy. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so we should give not just when our feelings hit us positively, but that we should weigh our consciences before God and say, I want to do this. I'm not going to do this just because it's rote or because someone might see me give or something like that yeah. or some moral demand, even though there is a moral demand, I believe. But it shouldn't be done just because you're doing the letter of the law, because then that means you're just making sacrifices because God has told you. But God says, I don't need it. If, if your heart's not in it, that's not the point. The point is to reorient you toward who I am and toward loving your neighbor. So our relationship should be well, should be in the same way. Like we're required to give it, but don't give it unwillingly because then it becomes not a true gift or a true blessing. Especially when, it, when there's ulterior motives tied to it. You know, I'm a wealthy, I'm a wealthy giver to a church and therefore I should have some say or they should avoid some certain topics I don't like, something like that. We should do it with actually with gratitude that we have the capability or we have the assets, if you like, to be, to be able to do it. Yes. Can yes, Liz. Can you see the chat or just me? I cannot. But if you tell me that, if you, if you can ask, if someone has asked a question through chat, just say someone has asked a chat or comment. Ben was mentioned, if anyone struggles with giving, and some of what you've said, the Bible Project short video of generosity is very helpful. So, yeah, the Bible Project, the video on generosity is very helpful. Mm -hmm. 
Great. Thank you, Sam, for saying that. I'll check that out. I didn't see it. Liz? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for sharing this. I think it's a good as one as we move towards Christmas, too, because I think it's mm. a really pertinent topic. Both of, yeah, and what we choose to spend our money on. Christmas Carol. Yeah, right. Um, I I was just wondering if you could maybe comment a bit on um, how, how I phrase this, like how oh, the sort of interaction between trusting God to provide for us and being responsible with our money. I'm not like you, I'm not very good with money. <laughs> and I grew up in a family without very much money. And my parents were Christians and they, you know, they prayed for what we got there were times where we had very little money and so i saw this real like um trust in god i think and we were provided for not like <laughs> with a lot of money but enough um and my grandparents the same way uh they were missionaries and kind of miraculous stories about god providing Lebrie has that history of miraculous provision um and we pray for god to send everything uh at Lebrie. We prayed. I I prayed. No, I no, I'm just. You don't pray. Instead of making ones and ones, you're making tens and tens. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think <clears throat> sometimes for me that like trusting God is sometimes like not sort of it's just like well I don't think about money that's more spiritual <laughs> you know so I'm just kind of curious if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, yeah, so Liz was was saying that, um, like me, she's not very good with money, and it almost seems more spiritual to not care about money. Um, but what does it mean to be a faithful steward, especially if you're not making much money and the call to be generous, or how should we be oriented to money? If yeah, trusting God's provision, but like because i think they're kind of two sides of the horse you can fall on but you know one is like just clinging to money and like trying yes. to always think about how you can get more and the other one is being like eh, whatever yeah you know, so one tight-fisted and the other is messy right yeah um that's really good yeah you know one thing i would just say in regard to you liz um <laughs> i would say that i think that you're very generous with your possessions i think you're generous with your home as much as you can be. Uh, sometimes there's limitations on people and how off, how much they can um, offer hospitality, but they can offer hospitality at a coffee shop even. But it doesn't mean that uh, it's not a virtue. It's not Christian to go in debt for somebody. I mean, in the sense of just like wasting money right. or just giving all your money away. MC Hammer uh, was a pop star saying, you can't touch this. Um, and he also sang a little known song called Pray. You got you got to pray just to make it today, uh, which was actually a big song in the 80s. But he gave all his money to friends and he had lots of friends. And as soon as he ran into financial problems, all his friends left. And so it was it wasn't wise management. He was generous, but without wisdom. And I don't think that that's a virtue. I don't think, wow, MC Hammer was so faithful and he got screwed. I'm like, no, actually, he was unwise with how he managed his funds. Um, and so it is important to, to think about how am I managing my money? Uh, but is it controlling me? Is it identifying me? Um, 
doesn't mean that you're like, okay, I need to pinch pennies. That doesn't mean it's controlling you necessarily. Now, if you're being miserly, then that means you might be taking control. Um, but yeah, we, we have to rest from work. The Sabbath laws are really financial and economic, giving rest to land, giving rest to servants. And also, it's really a posture of trusting that God will provide as you get to delight in what you have done and what God has given. But it's also trusting. So the Sabbath is really about um, trusting, but also delight, delighting. I think that even if we make paychecks, uh, you know, we pray for money at Labrie, but I don't think it's more spiritual than someone working and getting a paycheck. Uh, it's just two different ways of God providing for people in his gift economy, as one colleague put it. Uh, we do it for a very specific reason at Labrie, so that people might see a demonstration of the reality of God, um, that God is living and he does provide, he does answer prayer. But it doesn't mean that someone in Labrie would never say someone who works or fundraises is not spiritual, but that God has ha call them to call them to a different posture toward that money. But I mean, I sometimes find Labrie like just praying for money easy because I have no idea where money goes or comes. <laughs> it's just this magical creature. Um, that sometimes fills my pockets and magically disappears all of a sudden. I don't know what happens. <laughs> um, so, but that's not virtuous, right? You're not, but you're not the I'm not the bookkeeper. I've tried to get that job a couple of times from Julia, and she just will not let me take over the bush. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but it's really a posture. So Julia and I have to trust God in two different ways. She has to trust that God will provide, and I have to be responsible with the management of my money to say, how am I faithful with what I have? And sometimes, and to be honest, to be totally transparent, it's like sometimes I piggyback on Julia because I'm like, oh, why don't you be holy for us too? Both. <laughs> you know, then I can kind of get street cred from God. That's <laughs> <not> true. <laughs> uh, <I> respect. <laughs> But uh, but that's not necessarily a good thing, right? So I, I try to think about, okay, how might, in my position, how might I share? How might I sacrificially give? Uh, and uh, But yeah, each of us have to ask our own questions. How might we be faithful, whether we're receiving donations or we're working for our money, if we make much or if we make little? We always need to ask, what is my relationship to money? And uh, and how do I trust God with it? So. Yes, Fred. On a practical note, uh, my experience was it's a lot easier to be generous if I have very little than if I have more. Mm. And why do you think it's easier to be generous with little than a lot? It's way easier to give away a dollar than a thousand dollars. Oh, it's easier to give a dollar than a thousand dollars. That's true. I can see that. No, but that was my experience. Yeah. It's interesting. When we came into Labrie, um, Julia and I, uh, there was a woman who had been a missionary in the Dominican Republic for 30 years. And she said, Clark, don't look to the wealthy to support your ministry. Look to the poor because the poor know how to give. And I was like, that's weird. That's a strange statement. I feel like that's exploiting the poor. Yeah. Um, 
And she said, what you'll see is that they understand what you're going through. They'll have compassion. The people with money won't understand. Made me thinking that it's it's wasteful or something like that. And so uh, it's just that the that those who have less know how to give to one another and they're out of their need. They still are have a pulse to it. Um, but I will say that Julie and I both came from backgrounds that had wealth in it and it caused distrust of very wealthy people. But I must say in my time at Labrie, I have been redeemed of that view. I have seen remarkable generosity from people who do have wealth. I've seen stinginess among the wealthy. I've seen stinginess among the poor. But my my view of wealthy people has been redeemed because I've seen people, you know, let me tell this one story. Uh, I don't think that I've ever said it in a lecture, but I, um, maybe I have. But I tell this story pretty often is that when Julie and I uh, were able to buy the house through Labrie, we had 40,000 extra dollars. 40, we had 40,000. This is my story. We had, <laughs> we had 40,000 extra dollars, uh, you know, to fix up the house and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, great, we have $40,000 for renovations. And this one guy said to Julia and me, uh, after we left Bowen Island, he's like, when you leave Bowen Island, you're dead to me. I'm not going to help you again. Within After a week of buying the property, he's like, okay, we have three weeks in the summer. When you take possession, we're going to come for three weeks and we're going to do renovations on the house. I was like, wow, that's so amazing. Uh, and so he comes and he's working me like a dog. Um, and it's very tricky to be beside a major donor and working and me showing up with a coffee and croissant, me bringing one for him as well, so that he doesn't notice that I'm spending donation funds to have breakfast with him, if you see what I mean. Uh, and I'm just like, I hope he doesn't think this is wasteful, you know? And he's like, why are you late? Um, and so we start working and I always bring him a treat and coffee. So he liked that. And he worked from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Every day, hard, hurting his joints. He's 65. He wanted to be retired, easily could retire, but he just pushed, pushed, pushed himself in pain, but getting a lot done. It was two weeks in, and Julia, I, you know, we were staying in Sydney. I would pack the boxes, I would pack boxes in the minivan, drive over here. I would go get coffee and croissants, come over here, unpack them. And start at nine. So I'd work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. He'd work from seven to nine. I mean, I was working elsewhere, like packing. But anyway, so after two weeks, Julia's like, how much money have you spent? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, she's like, well, you need to go ask this guy. I was like, okay, I'll go ask him. So he's he can be quite curmudgeon -y. I didn't really want to ask him, especially about money, because he was just going to give me an answer I didn't understand. <laughs> but I asked him, he said, well, how much money do you have to work with? I was like, I don't know, like 30, 40,000, something like that. He's like, well, tell Julie it's under 20. Um, it's under 20,000. I was like, great. That's awesome. We only have one more week of work and we have only spent 20,000. So I go home and I forgot the conversation. I'm pretty cheerful. And Julio's like, so how much did he say? How much has he spent? I was like, he said it's under 20,000. 
Julia's like, that's not an answer. Is it 16? That is it 17,000? We need to like figure out the accounts. I'm like, what you worry about? We got 40,000. No, we don't have 40,000. Hence the story. We don't have 40,000. The rest of the money is to buy furniture and paint and all this kind of stuff. All we have is 20,000 for renovations. No more. You need to go back and ask him again. Specifics. I'm like, no, I'm not asking him again. <laughs> I had a lot of courage the first time. I have no courage the second time. So if you want to ask him, you can ask him. And so, so I'm working hard and Julia shows up. She opens the car door and she's like, you know, she likes to walk from point A to point B. That's what we love about Julia. And she goes straight to him and says, how much money have you spent? I need to know the exact figure. He's like, well, how much money do you have? We only have 20,000. We can't, we don't have any extra money. And he's like, well, I told you, I told Clark is under 20,000. Well, that's just not good enough. Do you have any receipts? Ah, well, I don't know. Like they gotta be maybe somewhere. I'm not sure. And she's like, we got to find him. How much have you? He's like, well, I don't know. It's probably not too much. And he's humming and hawing and they're walking and she's following him like a shadow. And he walks into the kitchen do you like this story, Julia? And, <laughs> and um, he, uh, he gets there and he's just kind of casual and he's like, oh, I think there's some receipts in here. And he opens a drawer and they're all perfectly in order. And she's like, what? She started crying, tears of joy. <laughs> she's like, look at the order. No, she's like, do you know how much you spent? He's like, yes, I've spent $5,000. And Julia's like, what? You've done two weeks of renovations? He's like, yes, it's probably done. I've done about $50,000 worth of renovations for $5,000. And so we're like, this is awesome. He worked for another week. So he ended up spending $5,500 for about $70,000 worth of renovations, according to him. And, uh, and when he left, he left a check for $3,000 on the kitchen table without telling us that redeems your view of someone who has wealth and who has given their body to it. And the gospel is communicated through it. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And yes. Oh, I was going to comment on kind of So I just want to say is like, we've seen that time and again at Labrie people who have money and people, you know, um, you know, I don't know if someone um, would hear this talk or not, but, you know, a young, young person, you know, came here and went back home and sent $250. And we were just like overwhelmed with their generosity because I knew that that was a lot for them. And it's like, so we've, we've been really blessed by that and, and try to also pass that on. So just a couple of comments here. Elisa, thanks for this talk, Clark. It was really encouraging. It reminded me a pastor at church that I went to in Denver gave a talk on money and challenged our whole congregation to go look at our past few months or more of finances and take note of what we spend our money on. Mm. It was a really challenging and good and revealed a lot. Mm. It's really so easy to get distracted and invest or spend outside of our values. And she's inspired to do that again. 
Wow, that's awesome. Thank you, Elise. Uh, yeah, so someone at your church, your pastor encouraged y'all to look at your past two months of books, uh, accounts, just to see and that you saw like what you valued and where you spent out of your values and that it was really illuminating and you desire to do that again. That's awesome. And one more here. Thank you for the lecture. This is Teresa. I try to apply these principles in my nutrition practice. I take clients who cannot pay and have mm. purchased supplements for clients who cannot afford them. However, I have noticed those clients are often the least successful because they have no investment. I am rethinking this for the future. I am curious what you think. And we found this too. So let me understand is that um, trying to, to be a nutritionist with kingdom values and allowing people to, um, those who don't have much money, to give them the nutrients for free. Or to take clients who cannot pay. Or to take clients who cannot pay. But the problem with that is that the people who don't pay don't seem to really, it doesn't really not to use this is bad language, but to pay dividends. It doesn't really work out well. Is that is that they're the least successful because they have no investment? Yet. They're the least successful because they have the least investment. And that's true at Libri, as you said. Yeah. That's true. There's been a few times where we have allowed people to come without paying. And um we have found that they were often, not not in all cases, but often the most entitled and the most demanding. Uh, and we started seeing that it was actually a posture of always wanting things for free, particularly from Christians. And, um, and so we realized that, you know, Labrie does charge money, but it charges a very low amount in order to try to not make it an obstacle for people to come. But when people have saved money and came and it was a cost for them, they're the ones who are most invested and who get the most out of Labrie. And so for us, it's not so much about the money we make, but really about that investment. And so, uh, yeah, to the question about nutritionists, like even if it's a small amount of funds or what some branches have done to help with this is to have a, um, I don't know the term, analogy for it, but basically they can pay a monthly fee of like $30 or $50 a month in order to pay off their stay after they leave. And that has been really a great way. And some people started, you know, paying and, uh, and some people just carried on in giving uh, because they started making money. And, uh, and so, uh, and they were thankful. It's, it's just, I think that there can be different ways of asking people to pay or to invest without breaking their bank. Um, and we continually have these kind of conversations. So, yeah, I hope that that works. Yes, Josh. So my question here is, so there's the poor of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. the, uh, um, run by James and Peter and such. But does it not speak to the um, weakness of that centrally planned model that Paul has to run around uh, Asia Minor in order to bail them out? in the sense that it can't be, um, and, and I'm not talking about the issue of charity or anything like that. I'm, I'm specifically focusing on the central planning, right? right? Because the, the people didn't give a tithe 
in yes. Acts 2. They sold their possessions and laid it at the feet of the apostles as if to say, okay, we're like it's a communistic model. Mm -hmm. And then Paul had to go out and bail that model out by running around Asia Minor. I've often thought that, that those things are related. Do you ever have you ever related those things? Does that make sense to you? Do you have any thoughts on that? The before I reiterate, are you, are you tying it to communism? Is that or 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 something like something, something like it. like yeah but okay so basically you're saying that the that the poor of the Jerusalem that James and Peter and Paul were concerned about mm -hmm. uh, and the apostles trying to collect money in order to ameliorate the problems of the poor of Jerusalem mm -hmm. but you're not you don't have a problem with their charity their generosity and all that but it just seems like a problem of central planning. And and the fact that you know there's there's a mention they sold all they had they didn't they didn't collect interest and put it towards it they sold all they had rather than collecting interest. One, I, I have to just first say that I don't know all the details, so I have to to speak off the cuff. Um, it's not like I know nothing, but um, I can't say that I can speak with total authority on this. But one biblically when it says they sold all they had can um it can be an expression of like they didn't spare they didn't spare a dime on this house well maybe they did spare a dime it meant they just they just gave a lot mm -hmm. um and so the bible the the new testament or the greek can it be expressive in that way it's a very jewish way of expressing you have to either love or hate you know these kind of rhetorical devices um and so I would say that, yeah, some some people did sell all that they had, but they they had also other systems at work there. So uh, there were people who had lots of money and they didn't give up their houses. That's where the churches met. So it's it wasn't. So I think it's unfair to look at the early church as a communistic model. Because it wasn't a demand that they all had to be equal. And also it wasn't necessarily down with the bourgeoisie. You know? uh, it wasn't up with the proletariat. It was much more about um, how can we make sure everyone, everyone's needs are cared for. Um, because Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. If the widows have money, don't worry about them. The widows who don't have money, let's worry about them. So there was a way of trying to address the concerns in a personal way. And also, I, I wouldn't want to put an economic system, a modern economic system on them, because uh, even in a proto form, because they weren't thinking of economic theory. They were just like, we just need to make a collection. How can we get this going? Let's throw a party. Let's have a conference. Let's whatever it is. It's like, let's pool our resources together to help. And so I think that there was some inefficiency. Uh, it what. They also, you have to know that they were thinking, okay, is Jesus coming back? It seems imminent. You know, let's be on our tippy toes because, you know. Uh, so there, there was a sense, let's address the needs while they are here. But there wasn't a sense of let's have a real centralized committee toward economics. But there was, there was a uniform interest in making sure that no one was without. There was a uniform concern that they cared for the poor. In fact, in Galatians, 
I don't need to look it up, but after Paul meets the apostles and they kind of grade him on, is he a true believer? Has he truly witnessed the risen Christ? Is he truly commissioned to speak to the Gentiles? And they said, they gave me this stamp of approval on one condition. Do you remember what that one condition is? That you make, make sure that you don't forget the poor. And he goes, and that has been my concern. So, um, so yeah, I don't like putting economic theories or centralized committee or any kind of centralized thought because they were just, it was just ad hoc. It was impromptu trying to address the needs as they saw fit. And as those needs continued, I think then it became more programmatic. I'm sure there were probably checks and balances to it. Um, that ultimately led to, okay, how can we address the poor in a more systematic way? How can we get food and money to the widows, the Hellenized widows? So there was some kind of planning. There was the Jerusalem Council, but it wasn't necessarily a worked out economic theory. And Teresa said, I read Acts this week, I noticed that right after, it, right after that verse, it talks about them giving um, their possessions, it says that God added to their numbers daily, giving yeah. from a heart of love as defined by God is very attractive versus forced redistribution. Giving out a heart is much more beautiful than forced redistribution. Yeah, and that's, you know, there's a commentary that um, sometimes I read commentaries and particularly on Luke, you have some commentaries or, or commentators or Luke, I mean, um, scholars who really think that the Bible is about forced redistribution, that uh, Zacchaeus was really convicted by Jesus and therefore felt guilty of his capitalistic ways and he needed to redistribute his wealth. Now, I do believe that there was a call to give generously. There was a call to make amends, uh, to be in right relationship to people. But I don't believe that there was a forced redistribution of wealth, particularly in how we think about it in modern day economic theory. There was a response. It was a free will response, a free will offering. Um, and that ended up calling and causing people to redistribute their wealth, but it wasn't like a program. Yes, Brett. I'm just wondering, Josh can answer, he's asked his own question, but I'm not sure whether you were asking about enforced giving, but whether it was just foolish just to give absolutely everything without planning and kind of setting things aside to help. Oh, actually, that is closer to what I was. Trying okay. To was it foolish to just sell everything they had to yeah. provide? Yeah, and I just don't think that they were selling everything. Yeah, so that was probably the first part. It's just like, I don't think they were selling everything. Okay. Yeah. I think that uh, some people gave probably to that extent, but I don't think that it was certainly a model that everyone followed. Mm -hmm. And uh, and sometimes people can be foolish. So I'm not saying that there wasn't maybe some foolishness, but uh, but there was a real desire to see... I'm reading a biography of Brigham Young right now. Um, and okay. so the, during the early Mormon, they tried to they tried to reconstruct that model, and it worked you know disastrous disastrously for them, or what they saw to be a model. Brigham Young within Mormonism was trying to enforce the kind of what they saw as a New Testament model of redistributing wealth, probably in Utah. Is that right? Uh, uh, prior, uh, this would have been in Missouri, New York. 
Yeah, well, it would have been great. Yeah, sorry, it would have well great. then it wouldn't have been Brigham Young. It, it would have been, been Joseph Smith. No, Joseph Smith. But Joseph Smith. In order to set up Brigham Young, they have to talk about the early Mormon movement. Oh, okay. So, so, yeah. so anyway, that's that, um, and think of how that just didn't work out very well, very quickly. And every time yeah. I've seen anyone um, in, in, in my encyclopedia of history, I anyone goes to Acts 2 and says, hey, let's do this. They always end up just in a terrible spot. <laughs> yeah, and that's where, you know, the Bible describes it as a wonderful instance of voluntary giving, uh, but there's no imperative. There's no formalization. Um, and so, um, so I have heard of people who want to give generously and live more commonly, but when it starts becoming formalized, then it becomes problematic often. Even, even within Labrie, um, we went through some growing pains. Uh, so there's, there's a farm called Conania Farm in Georgia in the 19... 40s, where uh, Clarence Jordan was a Bible scholar and also really desired to see racial reconciliation happen in Georgia on these farms and would invite Black people and white people on the same farm together. And they had a very communistic model. They had one pot and they all had to have exact accounting and all this and everyone got equal. Uh, and uh, they they had lots of series of bombs and attacks because of race. But what really broke that community apart was that enforced sharing. That common pot broke down from what I'm, I mean, they still exist, but in a new form. Labrie also had a, a common pot and it became quite easy when uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer were making a lot of royalties from their books. And we had careful accounting on what families should get. But it became very difficult, even amongst loving colleagues with a shared faith, to say what is fair. We still have conversations almost yearly trying to be fair, but we did away with that common purse mentality uh, because it wasn't something that we felt had to be instituted, but they just thought, oh, this is just how it started uh, because it was one family. And then it grew and grew. And then it's like, okay, there's different needs, different expectations. So let's separate it for the sake of the fellowship, not to bureaucratize the fellowship, but to say, no, we, we need a different model. So I totally, totally get that. Um, Naomi? Yeah. And Teresa, one second. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering um, what your response would be to those of us who might trend towards like getting anxious around like, am I, am I giving enough? Am I giving the right amount? Like those questions could never stop sometimes in my mind like how do you kind of respond to that um you haven't asked my needs yet so <laughs> i don't know if you've given enough no just kidding. <laughs> i'm totally joking um yeah we can feel anxiety about are we giving enough um this is not a lecture that's meant to create anxiety it's meant to give assurance and to give our conscience and freedom in Christ on how might we respond to the gospel. I do not think it is possible for me to tell you, or even for you to say, this is what is fixed. And this is how much I should give. Uh, I think that that has to be daily prayer or regular prayer, weekly, monthly, 
yearly, I'm not sure, but it's this sense of um, just bending the knee before God and saying, okay, how might I be faithful? And don't be anxious about it. Um, because God doesn't want to give, doesn't want you to give out of anxiety. He wants you to give out of freedom. But but you you can say, okay, Jesus, calm my anxieties, my fears. I want to be faithful to you. I know that you're faithful to me, and I will trust that. And this is what I want to give. And if you impress my heart to give more, then I'll give more. But I don't want to give it out of anxiety. So I would just try, I would say prayerfully try to separate anxiety and giving first. Mm-hmm. And then listen to um, where God is encouraging you or, or exhorting you to give. But I, thought, I think, Tim, like starting with a model of 10% is a good, it doesn't have to be that. It could be more, but it, it, I think it is helpful to think, well, I I want to, I like the, the idea of first fruits. So like you're giving what you first make before you do anything else in the month. Like um, I'm not thinking, oh, what else could I do with that money? You know, because that would be painful to think that all the time. Um, but more of a generous or I think it brings gratitude more to 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 do that. It doesn't have to be that number, but that was kind of what you think 10% is just like a good formula and trying to work from that. Yeah. Rather than kind of is. displace. Does that do you say that because it just displaces the kind of anxiety on like where do I feel? It's just kind of a formula. And I just want to be faithful to this percent. Yeah, if we ever receive more, I'll give more. Like if it's like almost like a bonus. Like so if I, you know, if I was to receive a gift from someone, I would just be like, oh, you know, I can think of these people that I can help now. Like, um, so it's more like exciting because it's not like your usual giving. But it's it's nice to know that I don't have to rethink it all the time. That that would be more stressful. That's helpful. That's helpful to have some kind of formula and work through that and just try to be faithful to it. Not as formulaic, but just as a helpful aid to remove the anxiety. One second, Teresa. Well, and also, uh, I was also going to say, like, if you make $100, you're only getting 10. If you make 1000 you're giving 100 Like, so it's nice that it works for everyone. So. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Teresa, did you want to? did you want to vocalize it? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't actually saying that the Bible um, is communist at all. (laughs) I I, I was saying there was a difference between giving, you know, from your heart. And I thought it was um, kind of beautiful when I was reading Acts. I think it was the first time that really dawned on me that as they were just sharing their resources out of love for Jesus, they, that God was really growing the church exponentially. And I I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, But then I also wanted to mention, I don't know if anybody has ever heard of a time bank, but you can Google it and look it up. And it's something that I think is um, really beautiful and unique. And um, I I try to look at my life as steward, is every part of my life is stewardship. So I'm stewarding my body, my resources, my time, relationships, finances, everything I'm trying to steward to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And um, so that is being hospitable. I mean, all, all of those things, because I don't believe that the currency that we've been discussing is really the currency of heaven. And, um, 
so anyway, so in the time, but I understand also this problem of when you're giving too much, a lot of the people who are receiving are not reciprocal. Um, they're very entitled. And so then that creates a lot of, of problems in that community. And so one of the models that I think is really awesome is the time bank model because it removes money and it becomes about time. Your dollar is this, or your, your time is worth the same value as my time, regardless of what you do and I do. And so it's kind of an organized way that people can share resources with one another. An example is like, um, this is a true story. There was a, a man who was in a wheelchair and he had a garage full of stuff and he had built, had somebody build a shed and he needed all of that stuff removed and put into the shed. So he called what was, um, they call it a barn raising, where they put out the message that, hey, we need all these people to show up and help. So all of the different people showed up with different resources. And there was like a guy who brought a violin and he serenaded everybody who was working and a woman brought food and she fed everybody. And then other people brought like muscle and they moved things. And, and so it really creates this amazing sense of community and everybody has something of value to offer, but the cost is just really your time. And then he paid them in timeshare. And so they that now have time in their bank account and they can take that and they can redeem it to get a haircut or a dental appointment or buy some vegetables or whoever's participating in the time bank. And this is something that I would love to see churches kind of implement um, because I just think it's such a beautiful way to also just grow community and get to know one another, but it's kind of safe. So you don't get into that, like, oh my gosh, I've been given to this person and now they're just entitled, they expect it. And you know what I'm saying? Wonderful. I love that creative energy. Uh, that creative thinking uh, of thinking in a new way, in a way that is also, you know, virtuous and relational. And just so you know, I don't think that anyone thought that you, uh, I don't think maybe I misspoke and it's my, my fault, but I don't think anyone thought that you were, that you thought that the early church was, uh, instituting or encouraging communism. I think that because um, Julia read in the background, and maybe you couldn't hear, her, but she when she when you she read your your question and reiterated it. I think it was pretty clear that she said instead of forced redistribution, you were talking about a free will love offering, and I think the time bank is a great example of that. Oh, okay. Thank you, Clark. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. I'm like, no, I would never think that of the Bible. <laughs> That's great. Uh, um, Sam, Sam said that the the tithe, starting with the tithe, is it makes us a better steward of the other 90% that's left. So that's a, great. A good place to start. Being a good steward of the 10% in our tithe makes us a good steward of the, begins to help us to become better with our other 90%. Really well said. Thank you, Sam. Well, are there any other questions, statements? Can I just tell about a 20-second story in 23 or 24? Okay. Uh, I was in Winnipeg, <laughs> and I had to go to work in about an hour. I need a bite of lunch. It's 30 below. So I walked out of the front of the hotel and go over to the, the Greyhound station over there just to grab a quick sandwich. There's a guy outside. He says, I haven't eaten for two days. And he gave me $2 so I could get some tea. Well, I looked, and I just looked at me, and I thought, uh God's going to really love me. I gave him $5. I mean, this is about 40 years ago, so it was worth more of that. 
I gave him five dollars, and then next time I was gone, oh well, anyways, gonna get beer or drugs or whatever. Anyway, about two minutes later, he comes back, and with the five dollars, he buy, buys lunch for both himself and his friend. So uh, I'm thinking I'm, I'm I'm such a great guy giving him the five dollars, and and he's giving his friend everything he has. Oh wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a real example of the gift economy, as one of our uh, former colleagues used to say, is that when we think of economic terms, really that I and it exchange, uh, it's it can be very reductionistic. And so he likes to think of gift economy, not just paying it forward, but that, uh, which also is like random acts of kindness, reactivism, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's... Um, that all of life is God's gift and how might we share in those gifts, steward those gifts, but also share them with one another, uh, living open-handedly. And it seems like that that person seemed to understand that. Yeah. You know, so thanks for the story. Very humbling. Yes. I think God's economy is different than ours, which we sometimes we don't know, we don't see what we're getting back because I think mm, there, were, mm. there, were, there were years when I, um, you know, didn't have a lot of money, but was tithing. And I think I had to say that, you know, I had a really crappy vehicle and I'm pretty sure that God, you know, protected that vehicle. And I didn't, you know, I didn't end up having to spend a lot of money on the thing. Uh, and I think, I think God paid back like that sometimes. I agree. I, God's gift, God's gift economy or God's economy is different than our economy because we always try to look for exact value, but God is able to bless exponentially uh and bless in ways that we didn't expect you know so thank you for that that's really helpful well okay well let's call it an end